we've all got a picture. We've all got a picture of God in our minds. And whether it's eight pounds, six ounce, baby Jesus, or whatever it is, we've all got a picture in our minds. And in fact, I can prove it to you. Some of us, when we think about Jesus, when we think about God, we've got this picture. This is kind of old school. Uh, you know, this is kind of maybe what you grew up with. Maybe there was a picture of Jesus like this in, in your house or your parents' house when you grew up. Uh, maybe if you're a little bit younger, maybe there's a picture like this. You know, the uh, passion of the Christ, Jesus. This is more the, the Jesus that you identify with. And uh, if you're, I don't know, maybe a little odd, you, there's this Jesus as well. Uh, this is the Jesus action figure. Um, I don't really know what you do with that, but it's there. Um, but the thing is this, is that we all have this picture. We all have this picture in our minds of what God looks like, what God is like. And so some of us, uh, we, honestly, we have this picture in our minds of who God is, that he kind of is like this grandfather. And so he's got in his long white beard, and that, that's, that's who God is, and that's kind of his character, that God is a lot like your grandfather, that he just, you know, hey, sit on my knee and tell me what's going on, and I'll just make everything okay. And it doesn't really matter what we do, because he's going to accept us no matter what. So others of us have this picture of God that's more like this hall monitor. If you remember hall monitors when you were in school, they got to wear the orange vest and tell people what to do. And there was like this clean, clear delineation of what's right and what's wrong. And they're just ordering people around. And maybe that's the view that some of us have of God, that we're just kind of God's waiting for us to get out of line so he can just wipe us out. Others of us have what I like to call the ESPN view of God. And that is that we, somehow we've got to get enough points with him. We've got to earn uh, his love. We've got to earn uh, salvation. We've got to earn all of this by simply what we do. It has nothing to do with God's grace and his love, but it has everything to do with what we do. And so it's and the problem with all, any of those pictures, if you just take each one individually, is that here's what it does, is that it gives us an incomplete picture of who God is. And as it's incomplete and it, tell, it doesn't tell us really who God is, what we have to get is a, is, is a bigger version, a bigger view of who God is. Does God love us unconditionally like a grandfather? Yes, he does. But there's also God is very, very serious about his commands and what's right and what's wrong. Does that make him a hall monitor? No, because once again, the motivation is love and not control. And so... Well, what exactly then is the deal? The issue is this. This, by the way, this was the problem that was, that's happened throughout the ages. I mean, if you go through cultures and civilizations uh, throughout history, you know, you know what you'll find? You'll find people that are trying to explain God. In fact, if you go to the ancient Egyptians, they, they saw God as someone who was all-powerful, and that's why they made the image of the sun. And they called him Ra, the sun god, because they said, well, if God is all-powerful, then he must have the power of the sun. But you go to maybe another tradition, another tradition in the East that says, you know, we believe that God is kind and benevolent. So and they picture God as a cow and they say, because we, that's just a picture of kindness, it's a picture of benevolence. Another culture, maybe a more American Indian type of culture will say, but we believe God to be someone who is just majestic. And so they picture God as an eagle flying over everything. And so there's that understanding and that idea. And so, but all of those understandings and ideas kind of fall short because it just gives us one slice, one attribute, one part of who God is. And so everybody was trying to figure out how do we exactly explain God until Jesus stepped on the scene. And when Jesus came on the scene, everyone figured out what God was really like and who God was. 
Because the Bible says this, and you'll see this in the notes that we gave you, and it's up on the screen as well. It says this in John chapter 1. It says, no one has ever seen God. The only Son who is truly God and closest to the Father has shown us what God is like. You see, people wondered what God was like. They wondered who God was and who God really was until Jesus showed up and gave us the perfect picture of who God really is. And what we're going to spend some time looking at this morning is an even more detailed picture of who God is. Last week, if you weren't here, we started a series that we're calling the end of the world as we know it, as we're walking our way verse by verse through the book of Revelation. And what we talked about was this. And this is kind of the big picture for the entire book of Revelation. And that is that the message of Revelation is not judgment, it's not wrath, it's not 666, it's not antichrist, it's any of those. The book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus in His second coming, but revealing who Jesus is and in turn revealing who God really is. And so it shouldn't be surprising to us that as we... Are, are working our way through the first chapter that before we even get out of chapter one, the first thing that we get is this description of the person of Jesus. And see, as I mentioned last time, it's not the picture that we saw in the Gospels. Instead, it's the picture of a king who's about to take possession of planet Earth for himself. You see, but here's what I want us to think about as we begin to look at this picture of Jesus. It's, it's this is that as Jesus was called to model the Father to us, you and I are called to model Jesus to a world that's far from God. In fact, the Bible would say it this way in John, 1 John chapter 2. It would say, But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know we are in him. He who says he abides in him must also walk just as Jesus walked. And so as we go through this passage, I want you to see this picture of Jesus, but I also want you to see the kinds of attributes that maybe we need to have in our lives so that we can model the person of Jesus to those that don't know him. So we're going to start in verse 9, and here's what we read. It says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a voice behind me as of a trumpet saying, I am the alpha in the omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in the book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, I want to give us in our time together these three snapshots of Jesus that we're going to see. The first snapshot is this, is that we see his passion for the church. That's snapshot number one. Now, let me kind of explain it this way. Uh, I have a two-year-old. Uh, my daughter turned two. And uh, uh, so that means I'm becoming fluent in nursery rhymes. Uh, I didn't really know very many nursery rhymes before uh, we had Mia. And so but I'm, I'm becoming very, very uh, fluent in them. In fact, I find myself singing them all the time. Um, I was driving down the street the other day singing patty cake. I was by myself and I was like, I'm driving and I'm going, roll it. I'm just on the steering wheel. Pat. I, mean, I, just, I can only imagine what the people next to me were thinking. Um, 
But, you know, but we do like row, row your boat. You know, we do that. And so she'll sit and we'll uh, kind of rock back and forth. You row, row your boat. And uh, I was telling her just today, uh, this morning, that just the theological inconsistencies of row, row your boat. And I'm like, do you know that, you know, row, row gently down the stream, uh, you know, uh, merrily, merrily, life is but a dream. And I said, you know, that that's, that that's a Buddhist belief, that we are all a dream in the mind of God. And I said, you know, Mia, that's theologically incorrect. You know, and so I was explaining that to her. She wasn't all that interested. But I was talking to her the other day because we were doing this other. You remember this rhyme? You know, um, here's the church. There's the steeple. Open it up and there's all the people. You know that we were doing that the other day. And I was telling her that that's all wrong, too. And I said, the reason is, is because it, it, it shouldn't be that this isn't the church or the, that might be the steeple. But open up it and there's the people. It should be. This is the building. This is the steeple. Open it up. And here's the church. The problem is it doesn't really flow real nice. And, and, and the reason is this, is because the church isn't a building. The church isn't a structure. The church is people. The church is you and me. That's why it doesn't matter where we meet. It doesn't matter if we meet in a high school. It doesn't matter if we meet in a theater. It doesn't matter if we meet under a bridge. Hopefully it doesn't get to that point. Um, but the, 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 the real point is this, is that it doesn't matter where we meet because the building has nothing to do with the church. The church is you. The church is me. The church is us. The word church in the New Testament is the Greek word ecclesia. Uh, and and it, it means simply this. They were, they're called out ones. It has nothing to do with the building. It has to do with a group of people that have been called out of darkness to live in, in the light that they've been given, in the light of Christ. In fact, um, the Bible never talks about the church as a building. That's because there were no church buildings until uh, the third century. But the, in fact, it, so, but it gives us much more descript pictures of the church. In fact, it says this in Ephesians chapter one. It's in the notes we gave you. It says, and the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. Now, see, that kind of makes sense that when we talk about the church. We talk about the body because just like a human body, we all have different parts. We all have different roles to play. And so when everyone is playing their part and, and using the gifts and talents that God has given them, now, you know, we call that when all of our parts are working, we call that health. When we, all of our parts aren't working, we call that dis-ease or disease. And so that's, in fact, but sometimes that can get misunderstood. I had somebody, this is a couple of years ago, we had helped someone out uh, that had just started coming to our church and um, I had walked into Beverly Hills Cafe right up the street and uh, for lunch. And so some this, this woman comes up to me and she says, Pastor, I just want to tell you. Uh, and she tells me the story of what some people in our church did to help her out. And she says, I just want to tell you that you just have an amazing body. And uh, I was like, well, you know, I have been working out. And uh, but no, that's not what she meant. It would have been a little awkward. Um, but what she meant was is that the, the body, the people of God, the congregation was amazing because she saw Jesus in the people. And that's exactly what that, that is so important. And, and I want to tell you something why I say that it would say the point was the snapshot. The first snapshot that we see is that um, Jesus is passionate for the church. Why? Because we see in this picture, as John turns, he hears this voice like a trumpet. He turns around and he sees this person like the Son of Man, Jesus, in the midst of these lampstands. And what we're going to learn as we get to the end of chapter 1, well, let me just, I'll, I'll tell you right now, in, in chapter 1, verse 20, it says this, The seven lampstands which you saw 
are the seven churches. And so the idea is this, is that Jesus is going to write these seven letters to seven churches that represent this, peer, this group of churches in Asia Minor, which is now like modern-day Turkey. And um, the point is this, is that he's standing in the midst of them. He stands, because each of these lampstands represents each type of church, and as we're going to talk about next time, and this is kind of like a really big idea, but each of these seven churches represent a period in church history, and we're going to talk about that next time, that, that all these seven churches represent church history in totality, and we'll, we'll talk about what that means next time. But what, what the, the point is that we see this picture of Jesus throughout the course of time dwelling in the midst of the church. And so what he does is he says, I want you to write this stuff down, and it's really important that you write it down because I don't want you to miss it. I don't want the church now or the church later to miss what it is that's taking place. And so John then begins to write. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a background on the book because John now identifies himself and he says, you know, I, John, your brother and companion in tribulation, I'm on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Christ. Well, what is that all about? Well, the year in which the Revelation was written, you may want to take a couple notes on these things, uh, was written in 95 A.D. The person, John, who wrote it was the Apostle John, one of the twelve that followed Jesus. Now, you have to understand is that in 95 A.D., all of the twelve that followed Jesus, um, or at least the, the, close, the close-knit disciples, uh, have all died at this point in time. Uh, Peter has been crucified upside down. Uh, Thomas... Uh, who was the doubter, as they say, uh, was beaten to death with a club. Um, you know, all of the other ones were killed for different, in different ways and uh, all for the same reason, because they were believers and they were sharing that Jesus was alive. But John is the only one that's left. And he was exiled to this island called Patmos, which is uh, where enemies of the state were sent. And uh, they say, well, why didn't they kill John? Well, they tried to kill John, but... He just wouldn't die. You know, when you try to drown somebody and then they're dead, but then they kind of cough it up and, you know, they can, and then they're awake and then you try to drown them again and then still lives and then they try to poison him and it's, the poison kills everybody except he drinks it and says, hey, can I have a little more? I'm still a little thirsty. And, you know, just kind of just, it's like he just won't die. Why? Because God has plan, had plans for him. And so he didn't. And so um, the emperor Domitian sends him to Patmos. And here's the thing is that Domitian who was uh, the emperor, uh, the Caesar at this time, he understood Christianity more so than any of the other Caesars. The other Caesars saw Christianity as a sect of Judaism. But uh, this, this was the first emperor who understood that kind of behind uh, these believers was this, you know, what one writer calls an enigmatic figure that um, was a threat to Rome because these were people who believed that they had another king. You see, they believed that uh, the Caesar was not their king, but that Jesus was their king. And so John is sitting now on the island of Patmos, and God begins to give them this revelation. And, the, and what he says is, I was transported to the Lord's day. And now, many of us, if you grew up uh, in, in a Christian home or uh, had any contact with faith as a kid, you know that the Lord's day is usually Sunday. But that's not what's being, he's not saying, hey, I was worshiping on Sunday and this is what happened. That's not what he was saying. He says, I was transported to the Lord's day. That's a very specific day. It's a very specific day because actually it could be translated this way and maybe more properly translated, not the Lord's day, but the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a passage that's used over 40 times by the Old Testament prophets, and it refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is, I was transported. 
to this time when Jesus was going to return and he starts writing everything that he sees. In fact, one of the times that this passage is used in the book of Joel, uh, chapter 2, where it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. Now, I picked that passage out of the other out of the other 40 that are there because he says, blow the trumpet. And that's one of the things that's mentioned in this passage in Revelation. He says, blow the trumpet. Why? Because this was a the trumpet was so important in a Jewish culture and an understanding of the Old Testament, because whenever the trumpet was blown, it signified that God was going to do something and God was going to do something big. And you can write down a couple references. They're not in your notes. But if you look at Numbers chapter 10. You recognize that when God wants to gather the people, he says, blow the trumpet. In the book of Judges, chapter 7, when he wants to prepare the people for battle, he says, blow the trumpet. So every time that there's going to be something that God is doing, he, he wants to blow the trumpet. And so uh, he says, here's what John says, here's the deal. He says his voice was like a trumpet because it was calling my attention to what it was that was going to take place. Now, the thing that's so important is, and this is why this is very interesting to me, is that Jesus wants John, wants us to understand this. Now, this is important because there's a point in time in Revelation, when we get to chapter 10, that John's about to write something down. That there's this group that say something and he says, I was, and John says, I was about to write it down, but then I was told not to. And which, of course, leads us to wonder, Oh, man, what did they say? I wish I had that. Uh, maybe it's in like the Inquirer or something. Uh, you know, because inquiring people want to know. Uh, but the issue is, and, is that he wants us to understand this. Why? And here's the deal. Because Jesus is passionate about the church. He's passionate about us growing. He's passionate about us, about us understanding. He's passionate about you and I growing to the potential that we have. About the church being everything that it can be. Now the question that we have to ask ourselves, if this is an attribute of God, is it an attribute of ours? I mean, if Jesus is passionate about the church, am I? Are we? Are you? I mean, is church something that we do if, well, you know, there's nothing on, well, there's nothing else going on, we may as well go? Or... Do we recognize the church's role in us coming to maturity spiritually? Because I can tell you this, and this... Um, having been in ministry as long as I have, I don't know of a person who's come to maturity in Christ without active involvement in a local church. You say, well, why is that? Because we aren't built to do that. You see, spiritual growth isn't something that was supposed to take place by ourselves. Spiritual growth is something that's supposed to happen within the context of community. It's when we're all moving in a, in, in, in a direction that we see growth happen exponentially in our lives. You see, people who grow to look like Jesus are people who love the church. They're people who serve in the church. They're people who give to God through the church, and they're people who regularly go to church. Because people who don't, won't, and don't grow to spiritual maturity. Well, that's snapshot number one. Snapshot number two starts in verse 13, and it's very, very descript. Here's what it says. It says, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. <clears throat> his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. 
and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a fire, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, what do we see? We see his passion for the church, but the other thing is this. We see, number two, his position for believers. His position for believers. Now, what, what do I mean by that? What I mean is this. You and I can learn about what someone does based on what it is that they're wearing, right? A lot of times we can. We can learn a lot about someone based on what it is that they're wearing. If I see a person wearing fireman gear, I can assume that they're a firefighter or a member of the village people. But for the most part, they're probably a firefighter. Now, years ago when I bought my, my, uh, the Honda that I have, um, I, went, uh, I went to the dealership and I asked, uh, and I was you know, talking to the dealer about price and all that stuff, the salesman. And I was wearing a pair of, it was a, it was a Monday, which was my day off back then. And um, I was wearing like this really loud, this is back in the day when I wore Hawaiian shirts. And I don't know why anyone didn't like stop me or put me in a special facility until I repented. But um, anyway, uh, I was wearing this really loud Hawaiian shirt and a pair of shorts and sandals or something. And so I'm talking to the guy and he says, and so he asked me, he says, well, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And he kind of gives me this weird look and he says, pastor, you don't look like any pastor I've ever met. And I thought, thank you. That's like one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me. Uh, just because I've seen what most pastors look like and I don't want to look like them. And, uh, but the thing is this, is that it, it, it communicates something. What, you know, what we do would communicate, who we are would communicate based on what we're wearing if we were trying to communicate through that way. Now, the thing is this, is that when Jesus wants to communicate something to us based on who he is by what he's wearing and each article of clothing that he's wearing, everything about him is speaking to us and it's speaking what to us? That he is the ultimate high priest, that that is his position for you and, and for me. That's why it says, if you're reading in verse 13, he says that I saw that he was clothed with this garment down to his feet. Once again, that's the clothing of a priest. In the book of Daniel, it gives us a very similar explanation or a similar description when Daniel sees the Lord. It says this in Daniel 10, on April 23rd, I was standing on the bank of the great Tigris River and I looked up and I saw a man dressed in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body was like a precious gem. His face shot a flash like lightning. His eyes flamed like torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze. And his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. <coughs> Pardon me. Once again, one of the things that I shared with you last time is that there's nothing new in the book of Revelation. And that's why we see this description. We have the description in the Old Testament. What John got was this ordering of events as to what was going to take place. Now, why is this garment so important? Because the garment spoke of your standing with God. It spoke of your standing with God. Now, you can just jot this down in your notes. It's not in your notes. It's Isaiah 61.10. This is what it says. Isaiah 61.10. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, and he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. You see, the garment spoke of your standing with God. The priests wore a special garment that covered them totally, because they would go into the presence of God. 
In fact, when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, if you're familiar with it, that the son goes and he spends all, this, all of his inheritance on wild living, he comes back and, to, and tells his dad, I'll just be one of your servants. And here's what it says, it's in your notes. It says, before the father said to the servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Why did he say put on the robe? Because putting on the robe meant this, that the relationship that once was broken has now been restored. When Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 fell into sin, what was the first thing that they realized? It says that their eyes were opened and realized their nakedness. And that's what happens. That, that's what takes place when we realize when we fall out of our standing with God, what, what happens is, is that there's shame because we recognize that we've been exposed. That's why our natural reaction when we do something wrong is to try to cover it up. And we don't even have to necessarily think about it. It's our natural reaction. It's why when you get stopped by a cop and he says, do you know why I pulled you over? We say, no, I didn't realize I was going 150 miles an hour in a 20. You know, it's weird. I just didn't realize, you know what? And, and, and we say that. And listen, a lot of times it's just it's like, man, why did I even say that? I, I, I did know it's because it's just our human inclination to try to cover up because we recognize that the covering reveals our standing. And that's the thing that takes place. And that's why the Bible says that when Jesus died, he died naked. It says that they had a garment and they took the garment off and he was crucified. But through his nakedness, you and I are now clothed. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's, it's in your notes. It says, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So he's got this garment down to his feet, rec- re- resembling or picturing the priest who would go in once a year and um, atone for the sins of the people on, uh, on the day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But it also says he has this gold band around his chest, kind of like a sash, if you would. Uh, and in this culture, and you can actually see it in some cultures as well that, that, that still exist, but in, in, in this culture, rank was identified with the type of sash that you wore around your chest. Jesus' sash is all gold, which speaks of kingship. Now, those of you that like to track stuff down, uh, check out Exodus 28. You can look that up in your notes, and you can check that out, and you can find out what the high priest was supposed to look like. The high priest wore a a band around his waist that had a thread of gold. Jesus' is all gold, speaking of that it's like, he's just the ultimate. But what the priest did was intercede on behalf of the people. So he would pray to God on behalf of the people and he would speak to the people on behalf of God. And so he'd become this mediator of sorts. And listen, and that's the thing that's amazing for you and I to understand is that that's the role that Jesus has. He's praying to the Father on behalf of us, but speaking to us and communicating to us on behalf of the Father. Here's how the book of Hebrews would put it. It would say, therefore, he is able once and for all to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless unstained by sin. Have you ever thought about that? That right now Jesus is praying for you, praying for me? I mean, it's an amazing thing to think about. But that's exactly what it is that's taking place. And the great thing is, is that when you and I pray, we have this, 
this thing in the book of Romans in chapter eight talks about this is that you and I pray. And then as Jesus is this high priest, he has this opportunity now to kind of like reinterpret the prayer like this is what he really meant. You know, and, I, and I, I personally love that. Like, I remember there was this girl that I dated that I was crazy about and she dumped me and I was heartbroken over it. And then I remember praying, saying, God, could you do something to help us get back together or whatever? And this was, you know, I was in high school. And, um, and and then, you know, so that's like my prayer. God, help us get back together. And so Jesus now reinterpreting. He says, Father, he says he doesn't want anything to do with this girl ever again. Like, that's not what I prayed. I want to get back together with her. Father, he says, just let me just let it go, you know, and and here's what happens is that, you know, you don't realize that. And it's like, God's not answering my prayer. I saw that girl like three years later. And I was like, thank you, God, for reinterpreting that prayer, because that was it was rough. It was rough. Uh, not rough. That was well, it's kind of that, too. Uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> that was a little harsh. Uh <laughs> But it says this, the next part of this picture, it says that his head and his hair were white like wool. They were white like wool. Why? Because it speaks of two things. It speaks of wisdom and purity. In fact, in Proverbs it says this. It says, gray hair is the crown of glory. It is gained by living a godly life. You know, there's something that happens in a person's life if they're, once again, if, if, if the gray that they have is through wisdom and they've lived a godly life, when you talk to someone who's godly and gray, I've got a few gray. I've got a few that are gone. That's why the ones that are gray, I'm like, hey, you can turn on me, but never leave me. Uh, you know, and so, and so what happens is, is that you, you, you meet someone who's gray, but who's lived a godly life. And you start asking them questions. You know what you're going to find? A depth of wisdom. A depth of understanding. It's also what happens. And that's why God wants us to come to him. It's this picture that he has the wisdom of the ages. And that we have the opportunity to grow and and to learn from him if we're willing to listen. In Colossians chapter 2, here's what it says. It says, being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full abundance or full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything that we need to know is in Christ, because it says in that passage that in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and all we have to do is mine those treasures and that knowledge, that understanding, all of those riches of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. We have that opportunity. It says that he has the voice of many waters. You know what that means? That his voice is loud and clear. But you know what's amazing? I don't know if you've ever been. Can I ask this? How many of you have been to uh, Niagara Falls? Uh, okay, a few of us. Those of us who grew up, north, grew up north. I've been to Niagara Falls twice. Um, and the one that really impressed me the most was when I was on the Canadian side, uh, the second time that I went. And uh, because there's this, you have this opportunity to kind of go around this, this uh, you have to go through this tunnel. And you get to the end of the tunnel and there's like these bars there to keep you from, I guess, going over. But you, you're kind of, you realize that you're underneath the falls and the falls are kind of like going over and then you're, they're falling right in front of you. And it is like, it is so impressive. And I mean, you can't even talk to the person who's next to you because it is just so loud and deafening to hear the sound of the awesomeness of all this water going forth. And see, the thing is this. 
His voice is the voice of many waters. I mean, it, it can be deafening, but you know what else it is? It can also be a whisper. It can be a whisper. And can I tell you this, that most of the time, that's the method that God uses. It's a whisper. In the book of 1 Kings, Elijah, who's had this incredible victory, goes into this depression. And he goes into the depression and he, and he is out by himself and he tells God, you know, God, just kill me. I mean, I don't even want to be here anymore. He's so depressed and he's looking for God to speak to him. And here's what it says. He says, and then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. This is what God tells him to do. He says, and behold, the Lord passed by. A great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks into pieces. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but God was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And can I tell you something that many times there's this opportunity that we have to hear God? You say, well, it's the sound of many waters, but why shouldn't it, can't it be loud? Do you know what feeds Niagara Falls? Little rivers, streams, all types of tributaries that are now leading to this massive waterfall? You see, a lot of times we're waiting for the, the giant voice from heaven to speak, but sometimes it's all of these little streams, tributaries, all of these things that are leading together that, that give us the booming voice. You see, sometimes it could, you could be sitting here and it's something that I say. And then it's something that you read about in the Scriptures as you're having a daily quiet time with God. And then it's something you go to a small group, and as you're in part of one of our growth groups, someone, the, the, the conversation comes up, and you didn't even bring it up, but the conversation comes up, and then you realize at that moment that God's been speaking to you because there was this, there was this, there was this, there was this, and now you realize how loud His voice actually is. But can I tell you something, and this is what's so important, is that if you really want to hear His voice, you've got to put yourself in a place to hear His voice. I mean, honestly, you can't, you know, I mean, you guys are here and that's that's the first step because you don't hear his voice if you're sleeping. Right. Because if you say, well, I'm not going to go, I'm going to sleep. Well, you're not going to hear his voice when, when you're sleeping, because I don't think God speaks in dreams on Sunday morning. I think that's just one of his rules. You know, like you should be at church. That's where I'm speaking. And then um, but at the same time, you can say, well, I'm going to do that. But, I, well, do I want to read the Bible? Well, you, if you decide that you're going to read the Scriptures, you're putting yourself in a place where God can speak to you. If you get involved in a growth group, you can put yourself in a place where God can speak to you. And what you want to do is say, well, I want God to speak to me, but I, I need to get myself into a place where God is going to speak to me. But I want you to think about this. If you saw everything that John saw, I mean, if you saw all of these things taking place, and you, you, you turn, you see this trumpet, and then you see this Jesus. Remember, he hasn't seen Jesus in 60 years. He's in his 90s. John is. He remembers when Jesus ascended into heaven in about 33 A.D. or so. It's 95 A.D. He hasn't seen Jesus in over 60 years. He's been following Jesus, walking with Jesus, praying to Jesus, learning of Jesus, but he hasn't seen Jesus in that amount of time. And look at what happens when he does see him in verse 17, he says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. 
I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive and I live forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. So write the things that you've seen, the things that are, and the things that will take place after this. And the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the third snapshot. Snapshot number three is that we see his promise for us. We see his passion for the church, his position for believers, but then his promise for us. What's the promise? It all involves the keys. You see, my my daughter um, loves keys. I think all kids love keys. My daughter loves keys, and so she always wants to hold the keys when we're going out. And so we'll go out, and I'll turn on our alarm, and then she'll hold the keys until I need them. And so we'll walk out. But the other day, her and I were going out. Uh, Mom was having some time to herself. And so Mia and I were going to go out. And so she's holding the keys, and I said, Mama, I need the keys. And she starts running. Now, I had already, now this was the weird thing. She starts running, like, in the backyard, and we're, we need to go out. And I realize this, I've already locked the door to the house. The car is still locked. And I'm standing there chasing a two-year-old for the keys. And I realized the person who has the keys has all the power. I am a lot bigger, a lot stronger, a lot faster than my daughter. And she's the one who has all the power because she's holding the keys. And if she loses the keys, we're in big trouble. So I finally, you know, wrestle the keys from her. And I realize that, listen, not only does the person have the power as the keys, but it also the keys represent authority. You see, when you have the key to unlock a door, you've, either, you've been given to whatever degree the authority to open that door, to be in that room, to be in that place. And that's the very thing that takes place. It's a, the keys represent access, they represent authority, they represent responsibility, and they represent relationship. Because I'm going to guess this, that nobody has exactly the same keys as you. But the closer that a person has the same keys that you have, represents the closer that the relationship is you see that's how it works my my wife don't have my wife and i don't have exactly the same keys but most of the same keys which represents the kind of relationship that we have and the the closeness of the relationship but you know there's something else to it too and that is that where there's keys even if i don't have the key a relationship can still open the door You see, there might be a key that I have that my wife doesn't have or one that my wife does have that I don't have, but the relationship can still open the door. And so when Jesus says, I have the keys of Hades and death, he's saying that he has the authority over hell and death. Why? Because he's conquered hell and death. And through our relationship with him, we have the opportunity to conquer Hell and death as well. In fact, it would, 1 Corinthians would say it this way. It would say, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is, is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power. But thank God, He gives us the victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's why death isn't something that needs to be feared Because it's something that's already been conquered and overcome. Now, once again, that's something that's a lot easier said than it is lived out. 
Because when we come face to face with death, not, maybe not in our lives, maybe in our lives, all of us will get there. But even in the lives of others. Um, some of you noticed that Pastor Mark wasn't leading worship this morning. And the reason is, is that his father is going to heaven today. And um, I was there last night, and as we were talking and praying together and uh, talking to, to, to his family about, about all of this, you know, there was something amazing that happens when the person who's stepping from this life to the next is someone who's not just talked about faith, not someone who's given like pretty good lip service to, you know, and knows all the right words to say and all that stuff, but someone who's really and truly walked with Jesus. And as we, I spent some time with, with his family yesterday, you know, Mark's dad is a guy who loves God, a guy who has served God and given his whole life to the Lord. And you know what's amazing to me? Not only does it give him confidence when he takes his last breath on earth and then inhales his first breath in heaven, but it also gives his family comfort and assurance. That's why the Apostle Paul would say, in speaking of the time when Jesus returns, he would say this, he would say that we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. We don't have to because when a person is a believer, we don't have to grieve like that. Like someone who has no hope, say, you know what, There's n- I'm never going to see this person again. Instead, we recognize that while we may not see them for a while, we will. Because the person that we have the relationship with is holding the keys. He's conquered hell. He's conquered death. And through the relationship, we know that we'll see him again. You see, the journey through Revelation is a journey of God revealing himself to us is a journey of us as we read, as we experience, as we understand. It's a journey of us becoming more like the person of Jesus. Friends, if I can encourage you in anything, and if you say, man, I don't remember anything else that he said, remember this. Walk with God. The Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found. And as you do, not only will you have confidence when you step from this life to the next, because every single one of us are going to get there. But not only that, but you give incredible assurance to the people around you and you become an incredible example to those that you love and those that are closest to you. And we become then a picture of who Jesus is, a picture of the one that we have relationship with who's holding the keys because he conquered hell and conquered death for us. Let's pray together. And God, that's our hope and that's our prayer, is that we would experience the depth of relationship with you. Lord, help us to draw close to you, to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.